to feel him tonight. Let me remind you, Jesus loves you. Can I say that again? Jesus loves you. Let's bow our heads and do something a little different. If you've been a parent, you know that your children come to you often and they raise their arms. So would you raise your arms to your Lord this morning? When your kids do it, it always means, Dad, Mom, I want you to hug me. I want you to pick me up. I want you to hold me. And what they're really saying is, I want you to love me. Lord Jesus, as we lift our arms to you tonight, the hug would be nice. (laughs) But oh, sir, we want to know more of your love. We want to hear your voice speaking to our hearts. We want to know that our hearts are in tune with your hearts. We want to be reminded that our names, our lives, are carved on the palms of your hands because you love us. And so tonight, Lord, with uplifted arms, uplifted hearts, we lift our spirits to you and we declare we love you, Lord, Savior, friend, Jesus. Now, Lord, cast your love upon us. Shower us with it tonight and fill this place with that old beloved word, agape. Let your love inhabit your people. I know we come tonight with burdens and troubles and of all kinds, family issues, personal issues, economic issues, academic issues, but how much they all fade in the power and the glory of your love. And so tonight we agree with the psalmist when he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name, for he forgets not all his benefits, the benefits of love. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. We're privileged tonight to sit under the ministry of Dr. Dan Powers as he comes to break the bread of life with us. And I understand you had a break last night, but there's going to be a little exegetical work tonight. So, Dr. Powers, please come. Well, it's always good to be here. And boy, I'm alive, aren't I? Sounds loud. Um, If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn to Mark's Gospel, the sixth chapter. And I want to read the first six verses with you. When you came in, I think that David Graham was passing out sermon notes. And there's a little bit difference between my sermon notes and other sermon notes you receive in church. You notice I don't have the answers here anywhere? (laughs) It's kind of like a quiz, you know. You have to listen to get the answers. I'm not just going to give them to you, right? So... Um, so you'll have to be listening to see that. Um, it's interesting that we lived in, uh, in Holland for 10 years, and I preached actually a lot in the different Nazarene churches there. And I was the first and only one they knew who actually had sermon notes, and I had them for every sermon. And I thought it was really interesting to have that. And I'd have, often have people come in and saying, oh, I missed this blank. Could you tell me what was in there? And I said, nope, won't tell you. You fail. 
no. I would always tell them what they, they missed, but um, it was kind of funny to, to have them always looking for that um, in the services. So from Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, I'd like to read the first six verses. And I know we've been standing, just sat down, but I'd like us to stand when we read from the Lord's Word. So if you'd stand with me, please. Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. And I'd ask that you allow your living word, the spirit, to be with us now, to inform us, to instruct us, to nudge us in hearing the message we need to hear. Thank you, Lord, for your word. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Here in Mark's gospel, we find the ministry of Jesus in full swing. Leaving Nazareth, Jesus had traveled into Galilee and was preaching the good news of repentance and forgiveness. What a fabulous ministry this was. What wonderful days these were. Jesus preached the good news about God. He touched the hearts of hurting people. He cast out evil spirits. He taught in the synagogues. He cured the sick and healed the blind and the lame. And so people were coming to Jesus from all over the country. We can can read about all these things in the first five chapters of Mark's gospel. Jesus healed the people and told them of God's love and forgiveness. And many of these people were repenting of their sins and coming to faith. These were exciting times of new faith and changed lives. And now, finally, Jesus was coming home. This was to be the grand homecoming. This was to be the great moment when Jesus would be reunited with his own people, his own townspeople, for the first time since Jesus had begun his ministry, for the first time since he had begun preaching the good news and healing the sick, Jesus was coming home. Certainly the people in Nazareth had heard about the ministry of Jesus. I'm sure he was the talk of the town. His story was the story of the local boy done good. The whole nation was following his movements. Everyone had heard about the miracles. Everyone was talking about his message of forgiveness and his words of love and joy. And now he's coming home. Mark doesn't tell us very much about Jesus' homecoming to Nazareth. Matthew tells us quite a bit more. Mark doesn't. Mark only tells us about the response of the people when they heard Jesus preach. At first, it seems like the people who knew Jesus were quite impressed by him. Mark tells us in verse 1 of our passage that Jesus' friends and neighbors and townspeople of his hometown were amazed by what he was saying. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom 
that's been given to him. But their admiration did not last very long. Their amazement quickly flipped over to suspicion and doubt. Hey, wait a minute. I know this guy. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Just a minute. Someone back up the horses. Isn't this the brother of James and Joseph and and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? Then Mark tells us that they took offense at him. The Greek word that Mark uses here is the word skandalizo. This is the word from which the English word scandal is derived. Literally, this word means they stumbled because of him. It is if they said to themselves, listen, Jesus, we don't know who you think you are, but we certainly know who you are. You're the little boy that grew up around here. You're the carpenter. You're Mary's son. And you're the brother to James and Judas and Simon. Because they already knew Jesus, they took offense at him. It was a scandal that the boy that they knew should try to teach and preach to them like this. And so they stumbled over him. This is such an interesting, kind of striking story. There's a couple of valuable observations and lessons which we need to learn from this story. First of all, the people of Nazareth rejected Jesus because they thought they already knew him. They thought they already knew him. When he came proclaiming the good news of salvation and offering them healing and forgiveness, they didn't listen to him or accept him because they thought they already had him figured out. As tragic as this is, the people of Nazareth were not the last people to shut their hearts and ears to Jesus because they think of a previous meeting they've had with him or of a previous situation they're aware of. They're not the last people to reject Jesus because they thought they already knew him and they already knew everything he had to offer. There are many people today who do the same thing. Perhaps even some of us here this evening, in a certain sense, have rejected what Jesus is talking to us about because we think we already know him. We think we know the story and we've learned all we need to learn from him. How well do you really know Jesus? Do you know who Jesus really is? How well have you personally met him? How is your relationship with him really? I've met met and spoken with so many people who think they already know Jesus and who Jesus is, but they really don't. They've heard about him, but they don't like what they've heard or they've been disappointed by something that has happened, and so they walk away, they reject him. When we lived in Holland, I worked as a security guard for eight and a half years at a pharmaceutical company. I know it's hard to believe, but it was true. They put the security of the building into my hands. What's up with that? One of my best friends at my work was a utilities mechanic who worked for this company. And so whenever I had night shift, which was really quite often, um, then he would often come and sit with me for the last 30 or 45 minutes of my shift, and we would just talk about all kinds of things. Every once in a while, we would talk about Jesus and my faith, And almost every time he would end up saying, Dan, I already know what you're talking about, and it's just not for me. And then he would go on and tell me about how unfair his priest was to him and his family when he was a child. 
And when you talk about how the church is only interested in money, or it's only interested in controlling people's lives, once when we were talking, because I'd heard this from him a lot, I interrupted him and said, just wait a minute, Frank. You keep talking about the church, but I'm talking to you about Jesus. Have you ever met Jesus personally? He looked at me and said, what? Meet Jesus personally? I don't even know what you're talking about. And so I tried to explain to him that my faith is not built upon the church, as important as that might be sometimes, but it's built upon a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And he just looked at me and said, I know all about Christianity, Dan, and it's not for me. My friend thinks that he already knows who Jesus is. He thinks that he's already met Jesus, but he hasn't. He doesn't even have a clue as to who Jesus is. I think there are a lot of people today who are just like the people in Nazareth. And just like my friend Frank, they reject Jesus because they think they already know who Jesus is. And so when Jesus begins to speak, or when they hear someone talk about true salvation or a real relationship with Jesus, they're offended. And then they stumble over Jesus instead of listening to him. In this first encounter with Jesus since the beginning of his ministry, the people in Nazareth were offended, scandalize, turned away, because they thought they already knew Jesus. You know, it's really quite difficult to criticize the people in Nazareth because they really did know who Jesus was. They really did. They knew his mother. They knew his brothers and sisters. Many of them had watched Jesus grow up. They'd seen him at work. They probably knew just about everything about him. They knew him. And yet, they didn't really know him at all. I think this is a very important lesson that we need to learn here. The first lesson for us this evening may sound kind of strange. It might even sound a bit contradictory. And yet, it's true. This is what I'd like for you to consider this evening for a while. Our first lesson is this. Sometimes you can be right and still be wrong. Sometimes you can be right and still be wrong. Sometimes you can look at all the facts, you can add up all the numbers and figures, you can be positively certain that you're correct in your conclusion, and you can even be right and still be wrong. Sometimes you can be right and still be wrong. Just look at the people in Nazareth. Here they are meeting Jesus again. This was not their first encounter with Jesus. As we've already seen, they knew Jesus very well. They'd watched him grow up. They'd watched him learn to walk. They'd watched him ride his bicycle through the neighborhoods of Nazareth. They'd watched him enter into his father's carpentry business as a young boy. They'd seen him in the grocery stores, in the synagogue, in the classrooms, on the sports field. They knew exactly who Jesus was. But here's the ironically tragic thing. Since they were certain they knew who Jesus was, they were unable to see who Jesus really is. When Jesus began to tell the good news of God's forgiveness, they stumbled over his message. They looked at Jesus and said, we know who you are. You are the carpenter. You're the son of Mary. You're the brother of Mary's children. And you know what? They were right. But they were also wrong. 
Yes, Jesus was the carpenter that they had seen grow up. Yes, he was Mary's son. But that's not all that Jesus is. Jesus is also the Son of God. And so while God himself was actually in their presence standing before them, all they could see was the local carpenter. Even though they were right, they were still wrong. How many times do we make this same mistake in our own lives? Perhaps some of us make this mistake with Jesus even today. We think we, we think we know him so well. And we think we know exactly what he wants from us in our lives. And so we just kind of quit listening to him. We just kind of stop letting his voice penetrate through our hearing. And so in doing this, we end up rejecting the person we think we know, but whom we've never really fully met. And so some of us are just like my friend Frank. And some of us are just like the people in Nazareth. We don't allow Jesus to come into our lives fully because we think we already know what he'll be like. We think we already know who he is. This evening, I want to challenge you to meet the real Jesus and to listen to him. Maybe you've been a Christian for years. Maybe you've been following Jesus all your life and you've made this same mistake. You think you know Jesus so well that you've really forgotten who he really is. And so you've stopped listening to him. When I was in college, I had a roommate who was not a Christian. We ran on the track team together, and um, he was a good athlete. Um, during the course of the school year, then um, we were at a Christian college, and so he began asking me questions about the Bible and about Jesus Christ, things he'd never really heard about a lot. And so along with a couple of my friends, we found out that he didn't have a Bible, and so we purchased a Bible for my roommate, Nick. And we encouraged him to just start reading about the life of Jesus, starting the Gospels. You know, watching Nick read the Bible was like watching a dehydrated and thirsty man in the desert fall into a well of water. He just couldn't get enough. And he asked me question after question after question about the life of Jesus. And he was so excited about it all. He said, man, Dan, did you see what Jesus did? Look at this story. It's like, yeah, I've read that before. I know that. Let me tell you the funny thing about this story, though. <clears throat> Excuse me. During all this time that Nick was asking me question and question, question after question about Jesus, he thought he was learning about Jesus from me, but in reality, it was I who was learning about Jesus all over again from Nick. You know, I'd been a Christian for so long. I'd almost forgotten who Jesus really is. I was so familiar with Jesus and the facts of Jesus' life. It was just old hat for me. And I'd kind of forgotten to actually talk to Jesus and allow him to talk to me. And so through Nick and through his excitement, I was able to meet Jesus all over again. It was incredible. It was incredible. But what about us? Have we, become, have we grown so familiar with Jesus that we've just kind of stopped listening to him? Have we learned so much about what Jesus did that we've stopped seeing what he wants to do? Sometimes we can be right and still be completely wrong. And so this is the lesson we're learning this evening from this passage. Sometimes you can be right and still be wrong. And in order to better explain this lesson, I want us to look at three ways that this can happen. There's three ways that we can be right and still be wrong. First of all, this can happen when we listen to the wrong people. This can happen when we listen to the wrong people. 
You can be right and still be wrong if you listen to the wrong people. The funny thing about this story in Mark chapter 6 is that even though Jesus grew up in Nazareth, certainly not everyone in Nazareth had known Jesus when he was growing up. That just wouldn't have been possible. When Jesus was a child, he was probably in the eyes of most of his neighbors just another noisy, dirty boy. I know because I had three of them. Not everyone in Nazareth could have known Jesus when he was a child. And yet when they heard him preach the good news on this day in the synagogue, they didn't listen to the words of Jesus. Instead, they listened to the voices of the people who had watched him grow up. And so, since they listened to the wrong people, they didn't, they didn't actually see and meet the real Jesus, the Son of God, who was standing right in front of them. They only saw and met Jesus, the Son of Mary. They were right, but they were wrong because they listen to the wrong people. And so we need to ask ourselves, who are we listening to? Who are we listening to? Who are the people you turn to for advice and counsel? We need to carefully consider whom we listen to. If we listen to the wrong people, as good in the intentions might be, we can be right and still be wrong. There's also another way in which we can be right and still be wrong, which I want to share with you. It's really strange to look at the words of the people in Nazareth. You know, everything they say about Jesus in these verses is actually amazingly true, and yet it's also not true. So look at what they say in verse 3. In verse 3, we read that they said, isn't this the carpenter? Well, yes, that's true. The Gospels tell us that Jesus worked with his father as a carpenter. The people said, isn't this Mary's son? Once again, yes, Jesus was Mary's son. Matthew and Luke both explain very clearly how Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary. The people said, isn't this the brother of Judas and Joseph and Simon? Yes, Jesus was their brother. Think about this. Everything they say is true. And yet, the truth is spoken in such a way that it's actually a misleading lie. True, Jesus was a carpenter. But he was not only a carpenter. He was the Christ, the anointed one of God. True, Jesus was the son of Mary. But he was not only the son of Mary. He was also the true, unique son of God. True, Jesus was the brother of Judas and Joseph and Simon. But as the only begotten Son of God, Jesus has and had no equal. He is God incarnate, God in the flesh. And so while their words were true, the way they spoke this truth manipulated the truth so that it actually became a lie. This is the second cause I want you to understand. Sometimes the truth can be manipulated into a lie so that we can be right and still be wrong. You know, this this really sounds like a very tricky and complicated situation, but it really isn't. I'm sure that all of you, all of us, are very well acquainted with this technique. Um, Let me give you an example. I remember once when I was a child, because we learned this very young in our life, to be honest with you, this technique. Um, I remember once when I was a child that something in our house got broken. 
Now, I'm the youngest of four boys in our family, and so believe me, in those days, there were lots of things that got broken in our house. Well, my mother came to me and said, well, Danny, did you break my pretty flower vase? And here's how I answered her. Sure, Mom. Sure. Of course I broke your vase. You know me. I break everything I see. You can give me the blame for everything, Mom. Sure, I broke your vase. Now, I was able to convince my mother at this time that I had not broken her vase, when, in fact, I had broken her vase. What? I told her the truth. Why are you laughing? I told her the truth, right? Didn't I say that I'd broken it? Didn't I say that she could blame me for everything? I told her the truth, didn't I? Well, I guess it was a half-truth. Well, unfortunately, these half-truths never seem to last very long, at least... Not in my case. After my brother talked to my three dear older brothers, then she was able to see through my truth, and so in the end I had to pay for it. Or to give you a little better picture, on my end I had to pay for it. Um, Wasn't the first and wasn't the last time for that either. Sometimes I think we're afraid to let Jesus into our life because we've been listening to half-truths. Maybe you're afraid to commit yourself completely to Jesus because you've heard that you'll have to die to sin. Or maybe you're afraid that that you don't want to commit to Jesus completely because you've heard that he'll want to change your life completely. Maybe you're hesitant to give Jesus full control of your life because the change is scary. It's scary to hear these types of things. But we have to realize it's just half the truth. Jesus doesn't just change our life. He gives us new life. He gives us a new hope, a new joy. He changes our life, but believe me, he changes it for the better. And so don't turn away from Jesus because of half-truths. If you do, you may be right, but you'll still be wrong. The third way that we can be right and still be wrong is if we have the wrong attitude. If you have the wrong attitude, you may be perfectly perfectly correct in what you're thinking. You can be perfectly right in what you're doing or saying, but still be wrong. One of the amazing things about Jesus' visit to Nazareth is the fact that he was able to do so few miracles. This is really remarkable when you look at it. Jesus was traveling all over the place, He was casting out evil spirits, giving sight to the blind, making the the lame walk, healing the sick. In the verses just prior to our passage in Mark 6, we read that Jesus had even brought a little girl, the daughter of Jairus, back to life again. He was raising the dead. But in Nazareth, in his hometown, Mark says that Jesus was only able to lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Isn't that strange? Why do you think Jesus couldn't heal many people here? If there's any place that Jesus would have wanted to heal people and help them, it would have been in his hometown. And yet, he isn't able to do that, it seems like. I think I can tell you why. It's because the people had the wrong attitude. If we have the wrong attitude, Jesus cannot, Jesus will not be able to touch our lives. Do you know why Jesus could not do any miracles there? It's not because he was unable to do any miracles. 
It's not because he did not have the power. It was because the people were unwilling to give him the opportunity. They were unwilling to give him the opportunity. Because of their wrong attitude, they denied Jesus the opportunity to help them. If we have the wrong attitude, we can be right and still be wrong. There's also one last important lesson which I would like for us to learn from this passage. We've already seen that it's possible for us to think that we already know Jesus when in fact we don't really know him very well at all. And we've also seen that sometimes you can be right and still be wrong. This was the case with the majority of the people in Nazareth. They would not give Jesus the opportunity to touch their lives because they thought they already knew who Jesus was. And so they took offense at him and turned away. In one sense, they were right about Jesus, and yet they were completely and utterly wrong. But there's also another group of people in Nazareth that we read about in this story. And if we're not careful, it'd be kind of easy to just kind of overlook them completely. These were the few people in Nazareth who did believe in Jesus, who did listen to him, and who were healed. Their number is so small that it seems like Mark almost hesitates to mention them. And when you think about this, I'm sure this was not a very popular group. After all, we live in a world, and the world doesn't change that much. We live in a world that looks down upon the minority. We live in a society which praises us when we follow the crowd, but it ridicules us when we follow a different path. It would seem like our world wants us to believe that the path of the majority is always the right path. That's why a democracy makes its decision by having the people vote. What is right and what is wrong is determined by the decision of a majority vote, or at least we're told that. For our society, those who fall inside the majority, they're the winners. Those who fall outside of the majority, those are the losers. Thus, if the majority goes against them, they're wrong. And so in the eyes of the majority of the citizens of Nazareth, the few who believed in Jesus, they're just wrong. They're wrong to listen to him. Just think about it. It's a simple case of mathematics. Just count the votes. The majority wins and is right. The minority loses and is wrong. So those few people in Nazareth who believed in Jesus, they were in the minority. And so, by definition, they're wrong. They're the losers. But this is the other important lesson we can learn from this passage. Sometimes we can be wrong and still be right. Sometimes we can be wrong and still be right. In the eyes of the majority of the people in Nazareth, the few who believed in Jesus were just flat out wrong. And yet they were right. It's important for us to see what happened with the people who believed Jesus. What happened to those people who were wrong because they believed in Jesus? Mark doesn't tell us very much, but he tells us enough. What happened to them? Well, it's really simple. Jesus healed them. Jesus healed them. They were sick. Jesus healed them. They were hurting. Jesus touched them. They were blind. Jesus gave them sight. Isn't this incredible? Jesus met the needs of the lives of these few people in Nazareth who went against the majority and believed in him. They were wrong, and yet they were right. 
and the evidence of their faith was they're healed and changed lives. How do you argue against that? If we were to put Christianity up to a majority vote today, I'm pretty sure it would lose. But that's all right. Because sometimes you can be wrong and still be right. Jesus wants to touch our lives. He wants to bring healing where there is pain. He wants to bring joy where there is heartache. He wants to bring forgiveness where there is bitterness. He wants to meet each one of us personally. He wants to meet you. I can't help but think about these few people in Nazareth who went against the majority opinion and believed in Jesus. Sometimes I think we find ourselves in a very similar situation in our world today. There's so many people around us who do not believe. Or they say they believe, but when you talk about what belief in Jesus means, they don't believe. Sure, they know Jesus, but they don't really know him. They've never met him personally. And so they stumble over Jesus, and they fall over him, and they reject him, and they're convinced that anyone who would follow this kind of Jesus is completely wrong. You're just wrong. These few believing people in Nazareth in the same situation we find ourselves in today, they're convinced the believers were wrong. And so what do you do in this type of situation? What do we do in our situation? What's the answer to the unbelief in our world? Well, I think we can find a very good starting point here with these people in Nazareth. Do you know what they did when they came face to face with this type of opposition? We don't see them arguing with the crowds. We don't see them engaging in theological debates. What they did is they just came to Jesus. They just came to Jesus. And they let him touch their lives. They came to Jesus. And they allowed him to heal them. They came to Jesus. They allowed him to change their lives. So what kind of opposition are you facing if you're of faith? Come to Jesus. Do people around you doubt your faith? Come to Jesus. Let Jesus touch your life. Sometimes you can be wrong and still be right. Watch this video. sinner lost and left to die oh raise your head for love is passing by come to Jesus come to Jesus come to Jesus and live now your burdens lifted and carried far away And precious blood has washed away the stain So sing to Jesus Sing to Jesus Sing to Jesus And live And like a newborn baby Don't be afraid to crawl And remember 
Remember when you walk, sometimes we fall. So fall on Jesus, fall on Jesus, fall on Jesus, and live. Sometimes the way is lonely. Steep and filled with pain. So if your sky is dark and pours the rain, then cry to Jesus. Cry to Jesus. Cry to Jesus. Spills over and music fills the night. And when you can't contain your joy inside, then dance for Jesus. Dance for Jesus. Dance for Jesus. Fly to Jesus. Fly to Jesus. Fly to Jesus and live. Fly to Jesus. Fly to Jesus. Fly to Jesus. We live in a time when, as Christians, then we are told more and more by the media, by the people, by the majority voice around us, that we are wrong. And the arguments pile up on both sides. We can find ourselves so confused in the midst of all of this. And the answer is actually quite simple. We need to come to Jesus. You know, our time's gone, and I've gone longer than I needed to. Um, but maybe there's someone this evening who just needs to come to Jesus again. And maybe it's not so much because you've lost your way and, and you're not following him, but just because you've just kind of forgotten to listen to him. You've forgotten to, that, that who he really is. And sometimes we can know so much what Jesus did if we just forget what he wants to do in us and through us. And so if that's the situation, come to Jesus this evening. Find that place of just surrendering to him, of giving him your life, of, I think, of repenting for not listening to him enough, but to reassure him that sometimes we don't know all the answers. Sometimes we don't know what the arguments need to be, need to be said and need to be responded to, but 
But in Jesus, we find that answer. And so, man, I want to pray, but if you'd just like to come and have a moment with Jesus, I'd like to invite you to do that right now. Um, obviously, you can do that at your seat, but if you'd like to come here and kneel as well, then, um, then you can find him. You know, he's never, ever really gone anywhere. He's right there, just calling to us. So we're going to have a moment of silence, and so if you want to come and, and pray, then I'd like to give that opportunity, and then I'll finish with a, with a prayer. Jesus, I thank you so much for the grace which you extend to us. I thank you for your great love. And Father, many times we're not able to experience what you have to offer to us because in the stubbornness and the futility of our own minds, then we think we already have you figured out. And we know the scheme, we know the way it runs, and... We just stop listening to you. And then we limit what you can do in our lives. And so, Father, we want to tell you that we're sorry for doing that. We confess that too many times then, instead of listening to you to hear what you want to say, then we just run ahead because we already think we know what you're going to say. And so, Father, would you forgive us for that? But most of all, would you touch our lives? in the midst of a, of a world which continues to try to squeeze, humanity, or, or squeeze Christianity more and more into a little box, into a corner that's out of the stage completely. And Father, we ask you to come through and clear our minds, to remind us of who you are and of what you've done, but also what you want to do in us and through us. And we surrender ourselves to you. Jesus, we come to you. Would you speak to us? Would you find us eager and willing listeners? And Father, would you give us the strength to also be doers of what you call us to do? Father, we thank you so much for the grace of Jesus. We thank you so much for what he wants to do for us, so much that he does do for us. Would you allow us to yield ourselves completely to you, Father, and to your Spirit? allow you to do the work that you've called us to do. Allow you to, 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 to make us into the people you've called us to be. And we do this to your grace. We do this to your glory. We do this for your pleasure. And so, Father, we thank you for speaking to us through this passage. Help us, Father, to follow after you, regardless of what the crowds might say, whether they think it's right or it's wrong what we're doing. Help us to follow after you, to come to Jesus and allow him to direct us, to forgive us, to guide us, to empower us. Thank you for that, Jesus. And so, Father, we go back to our classes reminded of your word. And, Father, in the midst of this, we want to be obedient to that word as well. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for your word. We give you great thanks. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you.